You are listening to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. This is your faithful editor and host, Michael Lichens, here today with author, speaker, theologian, Everett Fritz. He's the author of The Art of Forming Young Disciples, subtitled, Why Youth Ministries Aren't Working and What to Do About It. Uh, an excerpt of this article was posted by CE recently, and Everett brings a lot of experience here. He's also the executive director of St. Andrew Ministries. So, we use an excerpt on Catholic Exchange to share, and many of you read it, tens of thousands of you. And my oh my, did all of you have opinions, ideas, experiences, which you shared with us on social media comments? I'll bring up some of these questions that some of you asked later towards the end of the interview. But for now, thank you, Mr. Everett Fitz, for joining us on here, the Catholic Exchange Podcast. Thanks for having me, Michael. Happy to be on with you. Now, let's uh, dive right in. The subtitle can be a little bit provocative, I think, to some people, but it's also matching a lot of experience I've had growing up in youth ministry. But I'm curious from your experience, in what way do you see that youth groups just aren't working right now? Yeah, um, yeah. The, the title of the book is provocative, and you know, to some degree, you put a provocative title on to catch people's attention. But uh, I've been working in youth ministry for twelve years, uh, and for the first, I'd say, four or five years, I built um, really large youth groups in parishes, and uh, had what many from the outside looking in would have thought was a really successful youth ministry. Okay, and there was a, a moment. Um, where I was preparing my my uh, Sunday series of youth groups, and I was working at, at my desk, and I looked at a picture on my desk of a group of 75 uh, high school teenagers that I had brought to a Steubenville youth conference. And I counted uh, in the picture how many of those teens I knew were still practicing their faith four years later, um, four years after the conference, and it was something like 10 out of the 75. And uh, I looked at that, and it was deeply troubling to me because those 10 that were still practicing their faith were extremely faithful uh, to this day, now uh, lifelong Catholics. And But then there was this huge chasm of difference between them and, and those who had fallen away from their faith. Wow. And what, what I had um, come to, to notice is that uh, when, I, when I really evaluated what I was doing with um, those teens, like what, what the measure of success was, are we forming lifelong Catholics uh, or lifelong disciples of Jesus Christ? Um, I I noticed uh, that the ten in in that picture were the ten that I spent the most time with in terms of doing relational ministry. I mentioned them in a, in a smaller environment. Uh, I started to um, realize that uh, there was a common. Um, common factors in the sense that I did Bible study with those particular teens. I'd mentored their prayer lives. I knew their families and mentored their families. Um, and that was the difference. I, I didn't do that with all 75 teens in that picture. And of the hundreds of teens that would come through my youth group on a regular basis, uh, I noticed that those who were just participating in youth group, um, and granted, you know, my, my youth ministry looked successful because I had high numbers of, of participation, but participation alone wasn't an indicator of success. What the difference between success and failure was whether or not they were getting mentored um, in and uh, by like a living witness of the faith. So I started to adapt the way I was doing youth ministry uh, because I realized I couldn't give that level of attention to every teenager in the parish. Mm-hmm. Um, just wasn't um, wasn't viable. Uh, you know that that level of attention requires time, 
and I couldn't stretch myself time-wise to give that level of attention to every teenager. So I started to, to focus more on small discipleship groups and putting, uh, placing teens in mentoring groups with a, a couple of adults who were living witnesses of the faith. And I saw it, it really transform uh, the level of youth ministry that I was doing. I could see that. Now that's quite the w- large chasm. Uh, 10 out of 75, as well as that, and seeing that experience, was there another particular experience or idea that came to you and inspired you to write this book? Yeah, I think when I look at the Catholic Church and, and youth ministry as a whole, uh, I see that we are very good at getting uh, young people in the door. Um, and I, I think it says it in that article that I wrote for Catholic Exchange, uh, which is really just the first chapter of the book. Um, it's funny. I saw the the article posted on social media that said why youth are leaving the church. And I, it piqued my interest because this is the topic I speak on. And I clicked <laughs> on it and, and discovered that I wrote it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it was the Sophia Institute, who was the publisher of the book, The Art of Poor Me Young Disciples, had posted the first chapter on to try to bring some attention to the book. Exactly. And, and it, it got a lot of uh, attention. And in that chapter, which is also in that article in Catholic Exchange, um, I, I mentioned that, you know, we have millions of young people around the world that go to World Youth Day. In, in the United States, we have hundreds of thousands of teens every year that go to youth conferences or youth camps or uh, work camps or um, great Catholic experiences. Like, I would highly recommend all of these different Catholic events. Um, in parishes, we have thousands, if not millions, of young people every year that go through sacramental programs or um, participate in youth groups or ministries or different things of that nature. And yet, you look at the statistics of, uh, and then, I'm sorry, Catholic education as well, it mm-hmm. marks the largest investment that the Catholic Church makes uh, in terms of young people. I mean, financial investment alone. Uh, it's a huge, huge investment into young people. There's not a lack of effort on the part of the Catholic Church That's with regards sure. to ministering to young people. Um, but if you look at the numbers of young people that were that were actually retaining, uh, once they hit the age of 23 or so, statistics, and there's a variety of studies on this, uh, but statistics basically say that we're losing somewhere around the, the realm of 80% of young people hmm. leave the Catholic Church. Um, by their 23rd birthday. So it's very alarming when we see that type of a a difference. And what's interesting, too, is that uh, millennials um, and then generation, I don't know what you would call them, generation Z is what some people call the the generation Mm -hmm. that came after millennials. Uh, But they they tend to be better catechized. They tend to be um, those who stick around in the faith, that like 10 to 20% that stick around in the faith, mm-hmm. uh, are, are actually very faithful. Uh, they tend to be very vibrant in the faith, very articulate, um, very well catechized, uh, much more so than previous generations. So there's this like chasm, like huge chasm of difference between like the 80% that walk away uh, from the faith and the 10 to 20% that's, that stick around and become lifelong faithful to Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I found in working in ministry is that most of the young people that I speak with can identify a living witness, an adult mentor in their life who really demonstrated to them the faith and inspired them to live the faith. I mean, if I'm being honest, I think that's the whole reason. I, As many of our listeners will know, I'm an adult convert to the faith and grew up evangelical. But only reason why I ever came back to religion is because I had very loving good people in my life who were Catholic and showed me what it was to be a great Catholic, to be a loving person. Yeah, I mean, that's the incarnation in, the, in a nutshell, is that 
um, God became one of us to accompany us and show us what it meant to, to love. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you have this whole death and resurrection thing um, and covenantal theology. I mean, there's, there's that whole Paschal mystery, which we just celebrated over. I don't know when this airs, but, it, you know, currently we're, we're recording during Easter week. So yes. uh, Easter octave. So we just celebrated this. Um, but, uh, you know, the incarnation, Christ became one of us and walked alongside of us and demonstrated to us by, by his very example um, what it meant to um, follow him. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's what I see in working with young people, I, you know, that article that was posted by Catholic exchange, uh, if you're interested in the article and you're listening, it's, uh, why, why youth are leaving the church, I believe, or something to that effect. Young people are leaving the church. It was something to that effect. Um, yes. And we'll post links on that in our show notes. So folks will be able to find it. And again, it was lifted from my book, uh, the art of forming young disciples. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're interested, I mean, there's in the comment section of, of the, I, I read all the comments on articles that I write, which is a little bit of a, it, it can be scary <laughs> as an author to read the comment section. Oh sometimes. boy. Uh, but people had, a, were very opinionated. And I find yes. that on this topic of, of young people in the church and what inspires them, people become very opinionated. And mm-hmm. for me, it, it's a little bit alarming because I don't, I don't see that most Catholics that I speak with really understand why young people are leaving the church. And this is uh, what I spend a, a great deal of my time articulating in the art of, of forming young disciples is that there's a process by which um, ministry I define is, is the process of meeting somebody's needs. So when you minister to somebody, what you're doing is you're identifying a need that needs to be met and you meet that need. So if you have a homeless person, um, providing home and food and shelter and water is ministering to them uh, because you're, you're identifying a basic need that they have that needs to be met. Mm-hmm. Um, sharing the gospel with somebody who doesn't know the gospel is ministering to them because uh, they have a need to, to know and understand how they are loved by God. Pope Francis said in Evangelii Gaudium, uh, which was his first apostolic letter, when he became Pope, he, he devoted a section in, in it to youth ministry. He said, youth ministry, the way that we're doing it in our church today is not meeting the needs of our young people, that we are failing to listen to them, to understand them, to, um, to understand their needs, and then to meet those needs. And he says that one of the biggest failures in that is the structures that we've put into place. Mm-hmm. Is that, um, and this is, this is what I found in doing youth groups, is that I, I really believe, uh, from working in youth ministry for 12 years, that the youth group model of ministry, that its time has come and gone. That there was a time when young people had a need to be in a larger community. And I still think that, that youth groups have some viability but they're looking for more intimate relationships. I mean, they, they live now, this generation currently lives in a, in a generation where there's all kinds of social media. And if they want to have relationships with large numbers of people, they just get on social media and have it. But if they want to have an intimate relationship with somebody, some, something that goes deeper than that, a virtuous friendship, um, they, would, they thrive on smaller environments uh, and um, their basic human needs, the need to be understood, the need to belong the need to be transparent, the need for critical thinking around faith and beliefs, and the need for yes. guidance. Um, all of these basic needs of a human person um, are met more intimately in small environments. And that's why I found in, in youth ministry over the last six or seven years of my career is that I think a shift is happening in regards to the way youth ministry is done. Absolutely. And you stress the importance of relationships in your books, and also in several of your questions, you stress the importance of that relationships. 
For any of us who are wondering, what does it look like for a teen to form close, healthy relationships with people in their parish? It's not as difficult as, as we think if we provide the right context for it to happen. Um, that uh, What does it look like? I find young people are really interested in relationships with adults. That there is a, I think it's a cultural problem in Western civilization uh, that adults have been removed from the lives of young people. So if you look at the average schedule of, for example, an American teenager, um, American teenagers wake up in the morning, they go to school. Sometimes they go to school early because they have extracurricular activities or things of that nature uh, that they have to do. Um, They go to school for eight hours. Uh, They stick around for extracurricular activities or they go to an after-school job. They come home. Maybe mom and dad are home. Maybe they're not. Um, Maybe they have a family dinner. Maybe they don't. They do two to three hours of homework and then they go to bed. In the course of that time, where, where and when did they have a meaningful uh, conversation with an adult? One that went, goes beyond the basic instruction that happens in a school teaching environment or the coaching that happens in terms of extracurricular. Like when did they have a meaningful conversation with an adult? Seldom mm-hmm. does it happen. Like this is, this is the, the – Walt Mueller calls it uh, youth culture, the soup in which we're marinating our young people. Like mm. <laughs> they're, they live in a culture – that has removed adults from their from their life in a meaningful way. Yeah. Uh, and so what that what happens is you know they hit a time period in their life 14 to 18 years old uh, where their bodies are entering into adulthood. Um, their uh, life situations are entering into adulthood. They have to start to decide on things like career and um, educational choices and. Um, setting themselves up for long-term success. They start to enter into dating relationships and get into what can be adult situations there. They enter peer pressure with things like drinking and drugs and sex and you know all kinds of different things uh, related to that. All of these are adult situations. And so they're entering into like preparation to become an adult and our culture has removed the very people that are supposed to teach them what it means to be adults. So what that means is that young people are growing up in a society where, uh, where they are lacking the tools necessary to become the adults that God has made them to be. This is why you end up with 25-year-olds that are still living in the basement of their parents' houses um, you know, with college degrees and like, haven't gotten a job yet. It's because they, they just don't know how to adult <laughs> in life. It's interesting. It's, it's fascinating. So you ask, like, how do young people go about um, forming relationships, these types of meaningful relationships in the parish? They're hungry for it. And hmm. if a, a successful youth ministry in a parish wants to set up young people for success, they, they will find a way within their parish to set up, um, to, to create a, a structure in which these types of mentoring relationships take place. That's fascinating here. And I, as a millennial, I do relate to, I remember growing up, yeah, I did actually enjoy hearing adults listen to me and respond to my thoughts, no matter how stupid they might seem now looking back. But it's something I see even in my family that it's very much appreciated by teens. To another hurdle, many of us, you said uh, it's not as hard as it would seem. For a guy like me who is on the far, far side of being the introvert, almost to a point where becoming a hermit sounds lovely. Uh, <laughs> And I've thought this for a while. If I'm looking at, you know, we need to help the parish youth and to meet their needs, what on earth can a guy like me do or someone else who might be a little turned off by youth ministry? Sure. I think uh, it, it's 
it's helpful if there's somebody in the parish, even if it's the pastor himself, that is in a leadership position to to somewhat, uh, I guess you could say, organize or make uh, make the introductions happen. But uh, I mean, right now, my youth ministries that I run in my parish uh, consist of small discipleship groups. And I start one discipleship group at a time. I find a, a couple of uh, adults. So if you wanted to lead a small group of, of teens on a weekly basis and meet with teens over coffee and discuss the faith, um, I would first say to you, find a friend um, to lead it with you, safe environment reasons and things mm-hmm. of that nature. It just makes it more fun as well um, of to have a, a colleague and a friend uh, leading it with you. Um, then what I do is I go to the pastor and I say, um, find me one parent in the parish who has a uh, who is a lifelong disciple of Jesus Christ. So so it's a parent that if you met with them and talked matters of the faith with them, you'd be speaking the same same language. Like they have an invested interest in making their their teenager uh, a lifelong disciple of Jesus Christ. And usually the the pastor can identify uh, parents pretty easily that that fit that description. If he can't and youth ministry is not the biggest problem in the parish. You know, there's there's larger there's larger <laughs> issues there. Um, but uh, once I get one parent, the name name and contact information for a parent, I meet with that parent over coffee. I express to them my interest in mentoring their their son or daughter, and um, and then I say to that to that parent. Well, you, Usually a parent gets on board with the concept. They like that concept of, of a coffee chat on a weekly basis um, where there's going to be discussion of the Bible and where there's going to be, you know, an active engagement in prayer life and things of that nature. So then this parent says, well, what are you going to do to get my, my son and daughter's friends in, interested? I say to the parent, I'm not. You are. Uh, you know all of your mm. teen's friends and you probably know all of their parents as well. Invite those parents over to your house for coffee. I'll meet with them. We'll come up with a time and date to get started, and this group gets up off the ground. Um, and it's as simple as that. I mean, I just I I, uh, I I talk about this in the art of forming young disciples towards the back end of the book of this this method of youth outreach through parents. Um, parents are more invested than anybody else in getting their kids' basic needs met. If you present mm-hmm. to them this concept and start to leverage this concept of, of they um, can that using them as outreach to other parents, um, I found it is like the path of least resistance to get a discipleship group up off the ground. That makes sense. And it does sound a lot simpler than I think it would be. It's two coffee conversations. It's all it is. It sounds like you've read most of the comments from the piece we published. We also got a lot of social media comments. And I noticed a few themes that I just wanted to bring up in this interview with you. One, a lot of people ask, well, why don't we return to the Latin Mass? We see this in so many parishes that it involves the youth more and it brings more people in. Or some say Byzantine Mass. Has that been your experience at all? Or is that even an option for many parishes? Sure, I think uh, it's a really interesting conversation, and it's one that I'm trying trying to understand uh, better. Um, just in the last two weeks, uh, the Pope—I um, don't know if you've been following—but he there, there's a synod on the youth that's coming up in October, and oh, they yeah. had a uh, pre-synod meeting uh, where they where countries from all over the world sent delegates of young people, uh, 300 in total, to. Uh, the Vatican, and they put together a document uh, of what young people want the Pope to know about young people, uh, essentially. And um, what uh, then they also had an online forum on Facebook where they were gathering up about 15,000 people participate in this. And it's hard to summarize 
when you're trying to summarize young people in the entire world, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's really hard to get all everybody's opinions and everybody's statements down. But the, there was a big outcry because the document made a really, really short, I guess you could say, reference to uh, young people want reverent liturgies. And that was supposed to be a okay. shout out to the traditional Latin mass community because on the online forums, the traditional Latin mass community was very vocal. And so it, there was a bit of a controversy because they wanted the traditional Latin mass mentioned in name and they said reverent liturgies. But um, what I have found in general is I think that there's true, there's like a, a running theme, I guess you could say that uh, traditional Latin mass parishes tend to attract younger communities, uh, which is really fascinating. Uh, I'm not a yes. I'm not a traditional Latin Mass goer myself. I appreciate it, um, mm-hmm. and I believe it should be available. And I've been to it many times, and I have many friends who go to the. Uh, I live in Denver, and there's a, I think a couple of parishes here that that offer, yes, uh, offer traditional Latin Masses, and um, so uh, so and I've been to those parishes, and they have really young communities and young families. A couple reasons for that mm-hmm. is that. Um, I think every Catholic wants good liturgy. For the most part, uh, it, it's a scandal a bit that liturgies are so poorly done in some parishes, some communities. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> and I know, I know. For me, like I, I, I cringe. Well, I shouldn't say I cringe. I, I um, struggle if I go into a parish that has poor liturgy, poorly done liturgy. So poorly done music or music that isn't appropriate. Poor homilies. Uh, poor, uh, you know, like liturgical if there's liturgical abuses in any form, if the church is ugly, I mean, there's a whole variety of things. It's like there's something about beauty, which evangelizes. Absolutely. Right. Um, and young people, young people in particular are attracted to the mysterious. They're attracted to the sacred the reverence. They seem to have a, a greater understanding of theology. So they are attracted to the old traditional Latin mass, which has um, really strong theological emphasis uh, on the sacrifice of the mass and things of that nature. I also think there is a little bit of a, a reality that the people who go to these parishes that are traditional Latin mass parishes um, are really strong, faithful Catholics. Mm-hmm. And what that does is when, when the vast majority of the people who are going to mass are really strong, faithful Catholics and disciples of Jesus Christ, you form a community of really strong, faithful Catholics and, and disciples of Jesus Christ. And people support one another and they can talk about their faith and you feel like you're speaking the same language. You go into your general run-of-the-mill Catholic parish on any given Sunday and I, I know this from working in these parishes that uh, like the first meeting I did on sacramental preparation, I mentioned Jesus Christ and I feel like I, uh, to some parents, and I feel like I was, I might as well have been talking in an alien language. Like the reality of many Catholic parishes is that uh, this is the whole reason for the new evangelization is it's about evangelizing the people who are already in the pews because people are missing the basic gospel message. Um, you don't have that in traditional Latin mass parishes. Uh, so there's a a reality that people are attracted to that particular community. The parish I attend in Denver is very contemporary. Um, it's uh, Novus Ordo masses, very contemporary, and the average age of the people in the pews is 25, because the young people in the community just just all decided we're going to make that our parish, <laughs> and it's strong and it's dynamic and it's faithful, and um, and they all go there. And the the pastor's 30s uh, and is probably the best preacher in Denver. Um, and the liturgies are beautiful, but it's not traditional Latin mass. Um, I, I don't think that 
I don't think that we need to return to the times before Vatican II. Like every parish has to be one way. We have to accept the fact that the church is universal and there are many, many different ways to Christ, uh, even though, um, and which is why our church is universal. You go to Nigeria, the liturgy is going to look a lot different than it does in the United States. So I, I stop short of saying, let's all return to, you know, traditional Latin mass and all these old, old, um, practices and such while still respecting the fact that young people are attracted to this and there's a, a strong place for it in the church. Um, and perhaps more attention should be paid to towards it. Agreed. Yeah. I don't know if that's, I mean, that's a really long answer to your question, but I, <laughs> no, I knew, I knew the question was coming. So, uh, oh, of course, of, of course. The comment section on the blog. And I was like, no, I don't think that it's enough to say, um, how do we fix the fact that young people are leaving the church? Let's go back to the traditional Latin mass. Um, I don't think that that's going to fix the problem. And I actually say this in the book, like th- there's, there's this enormous culture of young people that have left the church for a variety of reasons and bringing the liturgy back to its sacred roots uh, or traditional roots is not going to affect the reasons why they left. So, uh, so I don't think that it's enough to say, oh, we just make these, it's, it's the typical uh, millennial responses. They just want the answer to be really simple. Like, uh, let's make this one change and everything's back to normal. It's like, no, it doesn't work like that. Like, <laughs> there's that tends to be, especially in our consumer, you know, fast driven culture, you want the silver bullet that will fix it all. And we didn't get into this mess because of one problem. We have a lot to work through. Right. A stronger emphasis on uh, good Orthodox faithful teaching, a stronger emphasis on the sacredness of the liturgy and making sure um, yes. to throw out. Uh, the 1970s hymns and liturgical dancing and all the stuff that young people are not attracted to. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, a stronger emphasis on, on these types of things. Yes, all can contribute to the, to the solution, but in and of itself, making these, these simple changes are not going to be enough. I think the, the best thing that came out of if I would recommend reading the document, I forget the name of the document that the young people are submitting to the Pope, but there's a, a good length section on the fact that Young people want living witnesses to model to them the faith so that they can become, you know, the saints of, of today and, and contribute and become holy. Like they want living witnesses. They want mentors in the faith. Related to the Latin Mass, because this is something I've seen at least in many Latin Mass parishes I've attended. And we saw this in an old Catholic culture. You might see it here and there, but people wonder Youth, youth could be involved through organically through things like parish carnivals, parish events. Uh, everyone might rem- if you live in an Italian neighborhood, you look forward to St. Joseph and St. Rocco's feast day, things like that. Can those things help? And why did they disappear in the first place? People are also wondering. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I say this in the, in the Art of Forming Young Disciples in Chapter 2. There, there's a temptation to go back to... Um, the 1940s and 50s and say, like, that's when the church was really healthy. Like the seminaries were full, the Catholic schools were full. We had all kinds of vocations, et cetera. That time period has come and gone and we're not going back to it. Like the culture has changed. And this is something I say in mm-hmm. chapter, chapter two of the book, I recommend reading it, which too bad that, that chapter wasn't posted as well. Like, like the, there are some things that we could bring back and they would be successful and there are some things that it's a totally different era and a totally different generation of youth. And the things that we did in the 1940s and 50s would not work with the young people today. What you're describing is was um, very much a time period of American culture in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, um, the ghetto parishes uh, that 
the community all revolved around the church and um, the local communities, and everybody that lived in the community was a certain ethnicity and a certain nationality, and they had their own certain customs. And so everything that the, the local church did was was very much um, integrated with the culture of their local neighborhoods and community. Um, that reality doesn't exist anymore. We don't have like ghetto neighborhoods where everybody is Italian in one neighborhood, uh, unless you live in like New York, or you still have some of that, uh, some of that reality, but the, the vast majority of America doesn't operate like that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, do I know some parishes that still run like carnivals and bazaars and, uh, yeah, sure. And, and, uh, those things are always, you, you put a Ferris wheel in a church parking lot, people will show up, you know, <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> and, and it's great for the community, but, uh, is that in and of itself going to, going to ch- change the dynamic of the fact that young people are leaving the church? No. Um, at the end of the day, if we identify the factors that make somebody into a lifelong disciple of Jesus Christ, I think you see three things. Um, they have a mentor who shows them, uh, because I believe that discipleship is an apprenticeship. Um, they have uh, there's a process by which they go through um, becoming a lifelong faithful Catholic. It doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. That uh, everything in our church happens by process. Sacraments happen by process. We don't get them all all at once. For the most part, it's a process. Um, you know, evangelization is a process in somebody's life. Uh, so we, we walk with them through the, and accompany them through the process of them going from unfaithful to faithful. Um, and then finally, like there's disciplines in their life. Uh, deser- the word deseri, which is a Latin term uh, meaning to learn, um, mm-hmm. the discipline and disciple have the same root word, deseri. Um, and uh, people have to be um, exposed to the disciplines of Catholic living. So how does somebody learn to pray the rosary with great devotion? Um, they, they pick up that discipline from somewhere. Um, how does somebody mm-hmm. become a, a servant in their community? They pick up that discipline from somewhere. Like we have to, to actively create, create uh, environments in which people can practice the disciplines of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. From a parent's perspective, what can a parent do to help their child, their teen, really become great disciples of Christ to re- grow and love the faith and carry it on to the next generation. Yeah. Practice the faith in their homes. Um, mm-hmm. uh, number first and foremost, um, and pray and become holy themselves. And when I wor- use the word holy, I don't mean like devotional Catholic. Uh, I know many Catholics whose kids have left the faith and they're like, I don't know what happened. I pray the rosary every day and um, which is great, great practice to do. Um, yes. And they're like, I, I know my, I practice, you know, I go to all the Bible studies of the parish, like they know their faith really well. It's like, well, okay. And, and what did that look like in your home? Um, did you, um, like uh, on a regular basis, I, my kids are ages 10, seven and five. We have regular discussions about faith and religion in our house because it's just practiced in part of our daily living and holiness is first and foremost about learning to love, love God and love your neighbor, um, is unconditional love practiced in your home. I, I had a Catholic therapist that I uh, spoke with that he has a lot of, you know, a lot of clients, a lot of people that come to him. And uh, I was saying to him, I was like, man, I, I really feel like some days, like I'm really failing as a, as a Catholic parent. Like my kids don't know this and that and whatever the case may be. And he said, do you love your kids unconditionally? He says, because whatever 
whatever kind of parent you are is who they're going to believe God is. Yes. He says, if you're, if you're a strict disciplinarian in your house, they're going to believe that God is all about following the rules. If you are a, their best friend, they're going to believe that God is their homeboy or Jesus is their homeboy. If you try to be, <laughs> um, you know, if you're distant in their life and not present, they're going to believe that God is just something distant and far away. Um, but if you love them unconditionally, you are, you know, a strong, faithful example of the faith and you love them unconditionally, they're going to believe that God loves them unconditionally. Um, and that's, that's the foundation of Catholic, Catholic parenting is to model the love of God in your home. So first, I mean, primarily, uh, we, we say in the, in the church that parents are the primary catechists of their um, children. And that's true. But I, I point out in the book, The Art of Forming Young Disciples, that primary means first. Um, they're the first example that that uh, that they're going that of who God is to their own children. Mm-hmm. So if they love their children, they are being even if they're totally imperfect as a catechist, they don't know anything about the faith. You know, not not a good necessarily a good example of the faith, but if they love their children, they're at least doing something right uh, that they are modeling the the love that God has for them. So first and foremost, as a parent, uh, if a parent wants to raise their kids to be lifelong disciples, I would say, um, learn to love your children the way that God loves you. And that requires prayer, and that requires a striving towards holiness, um, uh, that requires studying the faith, it requires all kinds of things. But first and foremost, it's about learning to love your children the way that God loves you. And that is very powerful, practical, but also, I can imagine difficult advice to follow. Sure, it's not. We all fail every day. All of us parents fail every day. But uh, oh yes, I mean that is the challenge and the, uh, the vocation of a parent is, is to model the the love of God to their own children and families. And now, my penultimate question: I always love to ask writers in researching and writing this book. What was something that was the most surprising or a delightful thing to discover while you were writing? Oh gosh. Um, I got to think about that one. It's interesting. I, I'm I've uh, written two books. This is my second book. I'm currently working on a mm-hmm. third. Um, but uh, the first book I wrote was was mentoring young men. So I, I'm a, a mentor. I would say more than anything is that I, I mm-hmm. do very well in small environments with with young people, with catechists, with youth ministers, whoever it is I'm working with, um, trying to bring them from one step to the next. And uh, my first book is about is called Freedom Battle Strategies for Conquering Temptations. It's all about mentoring got, uh, men through the issues of pornography and masturbation and things of that nature. This is mentoring um, parents and youth ministers and pastors and different people to to change the way uh, that we do youth ministry to and shift it to a more of a mentoring mindset. Um, and what I discovered in writing it, I, I, I really don't like writing. Uh, <laughs> and I like having written because I like to be able to take uh, whatever message it is that I, that I speak on um, around the country. I like to be able to put it in somebody's hand or, or spread the message and be able to say to them, um, read this. Like I, I, uh, in that comment section of that article uh, where there were a lot of people with strong opinions – I just wanted to be able to hand, hand each one of them my book and say, read this, and then let's have a conversation about this. Uh, because mm-hmm. it, it creates a, um, I, I would say, the first three chapters of The Art of Forming Young Disciples, I just try to create a common language, that we need a common language with which to uh, speak about uh, mm-hmm. how to minister to young people. Uh, because 
in a lot of cases, we're all, you know, you bring up uh, speaking to young people and people want to start getting into debates about liturgy. And, yes. and I'm like, well, that's uh, great. But even, even around that, we need a common language because, uh, you know, what is liturgy? What is, you know, et cetera. So, um, so I spend a good amount of time in the book saying, like defining what is ministry to young people or what is a young person? Um, how do we understand them? Uh, what is ministry? What is discipleship? Um, and, and how do we make a disciple, which is really the end goal? Um, and, and once we, once I kind of establish that common language, then you can have a really interesting conversation with somebody uh, and, and start to actually solve, solve the problem. Um, but unless you can identify the problem and have everybody speaking the same language around the problem, you, you never get to, to solutions. Uh, and that's probably the thing. I, yeah, there you go. I had to think about it for a second. But that's probably the thing I enjoyed the most was just coming up around the problem and trying to create a common language so that uh, it can create further discussions around the solution to the problem. Now, that's a fascinating discovery. I was not expecting that one. Speaking of furthering the conversation, uh, my final question to you, if people wanted to learn more about you, perhaps uh, engage you more on this topic and read future writings of yours, where can they find you on the internet? Sure. Um, thanks. I'm always happy to plug my stuff. So, uh, I have, a uh, two websites. One is for the, uh, nonprofit ministry that I run St. Andrew missionaries.org. Um, so you can go to St. Andrew missionaries.org and read all about the ministry I do with a uh, youth ministry around the country. Um, and then I have my mm-hmm. personal website, everettfritz.com, uh, where I have a blog and, um, different things where, uh, talks and talk titles and things of that nature. Um, and then I'm on Facebook and Twitter as well. So find me on Facebook and Twitter. And we'll put all those links up by CatholicExchange.com, or you can check the show notes of whatever podcast device you like to use. And ever, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today. This was a fascinating conversation. I could probably talk with you about this for another four hours. So we may have you back on again, yeah, depending good. on how many more questions we get. And, and you know, we found, I found out prior to us recording that you live in Denver and I live in Denver, so we could just get together for coffee. But but yeah, I'd love to be on the show again. It'd, it'd be a blast. I um, thanks for having me on the show. Oh, absolutely, our pleasure. And for all of you listening, you can go to everfritz.com find all these links at catholicexchange.com give us a like share this on facebook tell all your friends about it and if you can give us a review on google play or itunes that helps us out immensely once again thank you all for joining us god love you and have a wonderful week